The following sermon audio is from The Source Church in Plainfield, Illinois. More information about The Source can be found at www.sourcechurch.net. Okay, so this morning uh, we're going to be reading Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 through 20. And you're already great. You're all standing, so (laughs) perfect. Um, So Hebrews chapter 6, verses 13 through 20. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This is the Holy Word of God. You may be seated. All right. I'm back. I jumped the gun. Before we start, let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, we come before you this morning and we ask that you would speak to us through your word, God, through Hebrews chapter 6 and um, God, through this message. Um, God, we trust that no matter where each individual here this morning listening is coming from, God, we've all come from a different week, a different month, a different year. We know that you can and will speak to us individually, God with your word. We pray that your spirit would move in us, God, and open our ears to hear exactly what we need to hear from you this morning. God, so would you help us? Help us to see your goodness this morning. Help us to see Jesus, what he's done for us. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm going to start with a question, as I usually do. Do you feel stuck in your faith? Does it feel like you're not moving forward? Or perhaps you feel like nothing in your life and your faith is ever going to change. You might even be asking, am I, am I, even, am I any better off than my non-believing friends or family? Maybe you've even asked, am I, am I really even saved? What is this all about? What is the Christian faith about anyways? As a Christian, I have no doubt that you've asked yourself a question like that at some point before. Because over the course of the, this long life and the highs and lows, it's completely expected that you would. Especially after a message like last week's, um, where we had this strong rebuke on immaturity, a rebuke on a lack of growth in the Christian and a dire warning 
of falling away from a faith that was faulty from the start. So we're left to examine ourselves. Is your faith faulty? How do we, how do we even know? Well, I think a good place to help get there is to skip ahead Hebrews chapter 11 real quick, uh, verse 1, where it says this famous definition of faith. It says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And so I want to talk about hope this morning. That's what the passage leads us to. If you'll allow me, let me throw out another question. Okay, then, what is it that you're hoping for? And that question is wrapped up in the quality of your faith. And I think we all have a mixed bag of answers to that, what we're hoping for, from things small to large. Right? I hope there's food downstairs after the service. Whatever Debbie's brought, it's going to be awesome. I hope my car doesn't break down because I can't afford a repair right now. I hope that I finally find the one. I hope that our baby is born healthy. I hope that my boss sees how hard I'm working and finally gives me that promotion. We, we can hope for many things in life. Circumstances, provisions, relationships. But let's go deeper, though. What is the underlying hope that you're longing for? That is how we will really understand our faith and judge it. Perhaps you can better understand what your underlying hope is by how you feel when you sense it missing. When our hopes are delayed or seem unattainable, we feel uh, an emptiness inside. The famous Russian author, who I'm no Russian literature buff, Sarah is probably, but Dostoevsky, he captured it well when he said, to live without hope is to cease to live. And similarly to the book of Proverbs, says hope deferred makes the heart sick. And so this lack of hope, or when hope seems far away, it leads to despair. What we hope for is what defines our faith. And therefore, not all hope is the same, right? Some things we hope for may be foolish. We certainly don't want to hope in sin. Likewise, some things that we hope for may be good, but cannot be ultimate. Right? Getting married, having a family, being successful at work, all these things fall into that category. If we try and build our life on these hopes, they will be crushed under the weight of them. And so for the Christian, especially the Christian today who's feeling hopeless, full of despair, full of worry and anxiety. God wants to give you absolute clarity on what your true underlying hope is. We're not talking about the dessert table anymore. We want to know what the underlying hope for us in this life is. We want to know what the underlying hope of the Christian faith is. And with that, God wants to assure you and encourage you because he knows that we need it. And so we pick up at the uh, end of last week's passage, and there was this transition that occurs in uh, Hebrews chapter 6. 
uh, earlier in chapter 6, you have uh, the author gives a rebuke on immaturity, and then he gives this dire warning about falling away from your faith. And then, lest we despair, the author gives some reassurance to his audience, original audience, that their lives actually do seem to reflect a true faith and salvation. And finally, in chapter 6, verses 11 and 12, he states that he desires each of them to have the full assurance of hope until the end and to be imitators of those who, through faith and patience, inherit the promise. And so that sets us up for our message today, looking at Hebrews 6, 13 to 20. I encourage you to have your Bible open in front of you um, as we go along. But here in this passage, we're going to see that God is going to show us the hope that we have as Christians. And he will do this by basing it on the absolute certainty of his promises. And I'm going to focus on these four kind of main points as we go through. God proved his trustworthiness, his trustworthy promise to Abraham. God added to that promise with an oath. We, likewise, are heirs of the promise of Abraham. And the hope of these promises is an anchor for our soul. Those are the four main points. So we'll start with the example of Abraham, where verse 12 tells us to be imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. Verse 13 holds up a prime example in the person of Abraham. So in the arc of the story that runs throughout all of Scripture, Abraham is this foundational person. He's the father of the nation of Israel. And it's through God's calling of Abraham that this whole Jewish people group comes to be and is established. And it grows from one man to a large family to eventually a nation. And so all Jewish people know Abraham as their historical father, including Jesus in his earthly lineage. And verse 13 here refers to the fact that God made a promise to Abraham. So what exactly was that promise? We're going to look back at the history of Abraham as recorded in Genesis, the first book of the Bible for the answer. So we see the first promise in the call of Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. And I'll read that. Verses 1 to 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So God first makes this promise to Abraham, and he says, one, I will give you a land, I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you that you would be a blessing then to the whole earth. And Genesis continues, and we read on more about how Abraham left his home, and he journeyed to this new land that God was showing him. Uh, and then we skip to, to, verse, or to chapter 17, and the idea of the promise picks back up in a big way here. In verses 1 to 7. When Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you, 
and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, No longer, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall you be called Abram, but you shall be, your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. So to give some context for the patience and faith of Abraham that we're called to emulate here, we see her long waiting, the long waiting that Abraham underwent to see these promises fulfilled. So in the first calling of Abraham in Genesis 12, he's already 75 years old. And at this point, he doesn't have any children, and the assumption is it's not for a lack of trying. So Abraham is already living with decades of disappointment and not having children with his wife, Sarah. And if you've walked through any kind of infertility, you know that that waiting is brutal. And now in Genesis 17, we realize that Abraham, from this first call in 12 to 17, has been holding on to this promise for 25 years already. And he still hasn't had the child, the promised child. He's 99, she's 90. And God again affirms his promise that he intends to father a multitude of nations through Abraham. And God reaffirms this promise to Abraham again in Genesis 17, 21. More specifically, God says, But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. So God lays out an exact timeline now. We read in Genesis 21 how God did exactly as he promised, and their son Isaac was born to Sarah in that year. Now this alone would be a great feat of faith in the promises of God that, that Abraham held on for 25 years waiting But Abraham's trusting God is elevated even further in what we know as the testing of Abraham. And it comes to a climax in Genesis 22. In our passage in Hebrews actually explicitly quotes from this part of the story. In Genesis 22, we read how God tested Abraham by commanding him to take Isaac, his promised son, the one through whom these future generations and nations were supposed to come. And he commands Isaac, he commands Abraham to take Isaac and offer him as a sacrifice. To to kill him like an animal, like you would sacrifice an animal. And you can imagine the immense confusion by a command like this. Because Abraham has already waited decades for this child Abraham has waited to see the son be born as God has promised, and now that all seemed to be being taken away. But yet we see Abraham's continued faith in moving forward with God's command. We see his trust that God will maintain his original promise. Isaac is likewise confused. He's, you know, a a small boy at this point in time. Um, and he, he asks his dad what's going on, and Abraham responds, 
In Genesis 22, 8, he says, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. So Abraham is set to go forward with this. And in the most dramatic moment, with Isaac bound and on the altar, Abraham is, you know, holding the knife up, and God appears. It says, the angel of the Lord appears, and he tells Abraham to stop. And he commends his faith for not withholding his promised son. And then God immediately provides a ram as an alternative sacrifice. And this is where we get to the promise again. We hear God's promise repeated right after this in Genesis 22, 15 to 18. It says, And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So we are meant to see in this example of Abraham the absolute trustworthiness and certainty of God's promise. God revealed himself to Abraham, made a promise to bless him, and to make his offspring into a great nation. And even when circumstances seemed impossible by our human standards, right? You have Abraham and Sarah's ages. You have the long waiting, decades of waiting. And then you have this test to sacrifice Isaac. Even through all of that, God kept his word. For the Hebrew audience of this sermon originally, they could attest to God keeping his word. Why? Because they existed. <laughs> right? They were the biological offspring that was promised. And they had 2,000 years of their people's history from that point, from the time of Abraham until the time uh, right when the book of Hebrews is being written. They had 2,000 years of history to see how God had worked through their nation up to that point. And so Abraham is a strong example for them. For us today, for Americans, for you know, probably non-Jewish Christians hearing this message, we probably don't identify as strongly with Abraham as we should to grasp the promise in the same way. And I was trying to think of some smaller example uh, that could come closer to us. Perhaps, you know, for you, you come from a family history uh, where your great-grandparents, your great-great-grandparents, they immigrated to this country, right, based on a promise of a better life. And so if that's your family story, you could probably say and attest to the promise that, yes, that was a trustworthy promise, that my family came here poor with nothing, and they were able to work hard and be rewarded with their efforts for a better life for themselves and for their kids and for their kids' kids. And so on. And now here I am. So you can attest to the trustworthiness of that promise because it's your family story. Even more so, as inheritors of the faith of Abraham, Christians, we should identify with Abraham as part of the, the whole storyline of redemption. And we're going to talk about that more later. 
But the point is that we need to see God's trustworthy promise to Abraham and know that his promise for us today is just as trustworthy. We can trust his promise despite the fact that there might be years and decades of waiting. Despite the fact that life may seem to be flipped upside down and it doesn't make sense what we're going through, but trusting that God is going to continue his promise through that. So that's the first point. And the second point, we get to God swearing an oath. As if God's promise alone wasn't trustworthy enough, God here wants to bold, highlight, underline the promise, and he does that by adding to it with an oath. Hebrews 6, 13 through 15 says, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. You see here in these verses a direct hyperlink back to that Genesis 22 passage. Right after the testing of Isaac, where, God, where it says that God swore by himself. And so we just spent some time getting the context of uh, Abraham and his faith as an example. But the main point of this passage is less about Abraham and it's all about God. Abraham had great faith. And like verse 12 said, we should follow that as an example. But our hope ultimately is going to come from the object of that faith, God himself and the promises that he makes. And so the author of Hebrews is going to make a point with this concept of swearing or making an oath. It says that God made a promise to Abraham and he did, and then he did so by swearing according to himself. By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord. So Hebrews here gives the explanation that God swore by himself because there was nobody greater for God to swear by. So in the ancient context, swearing an oath was used to add credibility to a promise, much in the same way that we think of oaths today. Right Today, if you put your hand on the Bible, you're sworn in to give testimony in court or um, right, to perform the duties of an office. Or in, you know, the heat of a moment, you might say, I swear to God that I'm telling the truth. You do these things in an appeal to higher authority, right? That if you're lying, God will be the judge ultimately and hold you accountable. And in the non-Christian ancient context, before we swore on Bibles, people swore oaths by other deities, by kings, by the emperor, things like that. Hebrews 6.16 says, For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes, an oath is final for confirmation. And so verse 16 is making this argument from lesser, from the human context that we know and experience in oaths, to greater, to the fact that God himself even more so is doing this. Even with the fallibility of humans, we know that there's value in human oaths, right, enough that to the point that oaths are used in court and to settle disputes, it says here in verse 16. But here, of how much more value is an oath when God himself swears it? And he swears it by the highest authority in the universe himself. So if there was any doubt in the trustworthiness of the promise and certainty of God, 
the oath is meant to eliminate that doubt and just magnify, you know, the quality of the promise. That's our second point. And here I want to come back to something that was mentioned um, a few minutes ago. Why does this promise to Abraham 4,000 years ago matter to me, a Christian today in the 21st century? That's the century we're in, right? I think so. The logic of verse 17 shows us the value of God's promise of God's promise and his swearing an oath beyond just Abraham thousands of years ago to why this matters for the Christian now. So we look at verse 17. When God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. Notice that verse 17 doesn't just say that God desired to show Abraham. It says that God desired to show the heirs of the promise. This is God's intention for us today. Most naturally, you would think of the heirs of the promise as the children that came from Abraham, right? The nation of Israel. But Scripture points beyond ethnicity in a couple places. Um, Jesus himself taught, um, you know, in, in some arguments he was having with Jewish leaders at the time, that they were not, in fact, the children of Abraham in this sense. In John chapter 8, verse 39, he says, they answered him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works that Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who, was, who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. So we see being a child and heir of Abraham is a deeper spiritual reality based on faith in God. And the Apostle Paul explains this even more explicitly in Romans chapter 4. And it's critical that we hear these words. Speaking of Abraham, Paul says this, starting in verse 16 and skip into 20. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Skip into 20. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. This is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. If you are a Christian today, you share in the faith of Abraham. You share in the whole redemptive story of the Bible. You share in the same saving faith where righteousness is bestowed on us by God. Not because of our goodness, not because of 
our actions, but because God came to us with a promise. God came to us and he breathed life back into us when we were dead. And he gave us the faith that we need so that we could trust in Jesus, who was delivered to death for us and raised from the dead for our justification. So we are heirs of the promise with Abraham in this saving faith. This is the good news and the promise for the Christian. This is the gospel message. I hope that you can hear that and understand that this morning. Staying at verse 17, I want to back up a bit and not miss something. In verse 17, when we read the words, God desired, there should be like alarm bells and flashing lights going on. This is meant to catch our attention, right? That if God desires something, it's probably really, really important. Here we see in verse 17 that God desired to show us, to show more convincingly to us the unchangeable character of his purpose. And so verses 17 and 18 are where the main idea of the sermon is coming from. That God wants you to leave here today absolutely convinced, assured, and encouraged. God knows our doubts, our unbelief. He knows our fallibility. And so he wants to convince us of the truth of his unchangeable character, his trustworthy promises. The heart of God is to meet us in our doubt and encourage us to persevere. And the God who swore by himself and the God who made promises to Abraham is the same God that we know today. He is just as reliable to us. Verse 18 drives this point. It says, So by two unchangeable things, in which is it impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. So by two unchangeable things, the two unchangeable things in mind here are uh, the promise that God made to Abraham and the oath that God made, swearing by himself. And it says it is impossible for God to lie. So his promises are certain because they're built on these unchangeable things. And as if we needed more evidence of God's desire for us to be encouraged and to persevere in the faith, it says here in verse 18 that he has set this hope before us. So imagine God is coming to us. He's coming at us with this and he's placing it in front of us. He wants us to see this hope and be able to hold on to it tangibly. It says that he wants us to be able to hold fast to it. Another you know, way to think of hold fast is just the idea of he wants us to cling to it and grab hold of it and not let go. And verse 19 gives us a further picture of what that looks like, of what we're meant to hold fast to with his promise. 19 says, We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor 
of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. Even if you don't ride boats frequently, I don't. Uh, I'm sure you know what an anchor does, right? It's not just a wall decoration for your cottage bathroom. Anchors are meant to keep a boat in place and to protect them from drifting away, right? And so with an anchor, you have the weight and the arms of it that allow it to sink down and grab hold onto something solid below the water. Without an anchor, you will drift away without even realizing it. Katie and I were paddleboarding, stand-up paddleboarding a few weeks ago because we're really cool, so we do that. And uh, we were on the lake, and we stopped at this scenic spot, and we just spent like 15 minutes talking, enjoying it. And without even realizing it, you know, we had kept drifting down. We were like way further down the lake than we thought. Uh, of course, in the opposite direction that we needed to go and return our rentals. Um, but what we needed was an anchor to hold us in place. Though that's not standard thing to have on a paddleboard. It's really fun. You should try it sometime. What does, an anchor, what does the anchor metaphor mean for us? I think it's helpful to look at both ends of the anchor here. Because on the boat side, anchors only work if they're held onto, if they're firmly attached, tied to the boat. Otherwise, you'll just keep floating on. And you, that might, you might hear that and think, wait, doesn't that just put the onus back onto us? Isn't persevering your faith then just a matter of how well you can hold on in your efforts? And I would respond that I, th I think this text in the Bible at large would not support that. The emphasis of this passage is on God's assurance, his effort toward us. And we are called to then respond to God. In verse 18, we're referred to as those who have fled for refuge. Right? Are the ones fleeing the heroes? Are the refugees the saviors? No. They're the ones who are being saved and protected. So we respond by fleeing and seeking protection and salvation in God, and the God who is our refuge. We respond by holding on to the rope, but the stabilizing action of the anchor is brought about by the business end of the anchor, right? That goes down beneath the, the water and attaches to the rocks. Right? When Katie and I were out on the paddleboard, which is something we do all the time, like once a year, we actually, in that moment, we were holding on to each other, or I was holding on to her, her board. I, I kept a hand on her board the whole time. But that act of holding was not sufficient to keep us from drifting we just drifted together. <laughs> so it didn't matter how hard or how loosely I held on to her board. Right? Even relatively large boats can be held to the dock by just a thin rope. The anchor and the foundation are the protection. Not, it's, it's not really in the act of the holding itself. Finally, I want to end with looking at the image of the other end, what the anchor holds on to. And we read that we have a steadfast anchor of the soul, 
a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. This verse here is alluding to the temple and the sacrificial system of the Jewish practice, where once a year, the high priest would enter into this innermost sanctuary of the temple known as the Holy of Holies. It was this area in the temple behind a thick curtain. And this part of the temple is where God's earthly presence was known and meant to dwell. The Holy of Holies can be thought of as a place on earth where heaven and earth are meeting and most closely connected. And so, rather than imagining our anchor descending into the sea, for the Christian, our anchor grappling hooks up into heaven. It says here that it goes into the place behind the curtain. And we see that Jesus is our connection point. Verse 20, where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So it says that Jesus has gone before us. He is our forerunner. Jesus is the one who's broken through that dividing curtain to connect us to the presence of God. He has done this for us and on our behalf. It says he has forever become a high priest to us. And and Scott next week is going to talk a lot more about what it means for Jesus to be a high priest and what it's talking about with this order of Melchizedek. So I'm not going to expand on that now. But our focus here is that Jesus is the one who brings access to the place behind the curtain, the place behind the veil. He brings our acre with him to draw us into the presence of himself and of God the Father. So this is what we cling to. This is what we need to hold fast to. Hold fast to Jesus. Paul says, the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians, for all the promises of God find their yes in him, speaking of Jesus. That Jesus is the promise of God. And with Jesus as the one holding our anchor and bringing our anchor forward, I want to remember back to these words from Hebrews chapter 4 that... um, We talked about a few weeks ago. Um, These are foundational verses that I've turned back to many times for encouragement. Hebrews 4, 14 to 16. It says, Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Verse 16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in, our, in time of need. Brothers and sisters, the weight of this life is long and we know that we are prone to discouragement, to doubt, to anxiety. So I, I want to ask again, what are you placing your hope in? Are you chasing a false promise? God here today wants to convince you of the certainty of his promise. His promise in Jesus so that you would have a strong anchor to hold on to. 
God's desire is to encourage you to trust in his unchanging character and purpose. God wants to anchor you to himself through Jesus, and so trust in him. Trust that he's good. Trust that he's strong and that he will deliver on exactly what he's promised to us in Christ. Trust his promise to bring us to eternity. Trust his promise to right every wrong. Trust his promise to wipe away every tear. I'm urging you this morning to respond in faith today. Confess your weakness, your weakness to persevere alone. Ask him for shelter and refuge. Ask him to hold you as you attempt to hold him in hope. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, we, we thank you for your desire to encourage us, for your desire to hold on to us, God. I pray that your words would be clear in our mind, in our hearts this morning, God, that you are trustworthy, your promises are certain, God, that we can hold on to Jesus. You will hold us till the end, God. You will help us to persevere in our faith. You will not let us fall away. So we thank you for that this morning, God. We praise you. We just want to pour out our hearts to you, God, and praise. Help us to do that in worship and in communion. Pray this all in Jesus' name.